It is time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Before we dive into the stories of the week, I had some questions. Of course, I'm not a lawyer. Earlier on Open Lines about an incident of which I'm sure you're aware about some uh, notes that were left on vehicles in the Victoria area in Oak Bay particular, talking about, uh, yes, you are the problem, talking about climate change and whatnot. Young man coming forward, admitting to engaging in that conduct. I had people asking me on our open lines, is this a crime? Is this trespassing? Should the police be called? Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, the, the, there's a section of the criminal code that might come to mind, but it would be, I, I think, a live issue as to whether it has application on these this fact pattern. The section that comes to mind is section 177 of the criminal code that says this. Every person who without lawful excuse, now that's important, mm-hmm. loiters or prowls at night on the property of another person near a dwelling house situated on that property is guilty of an uh, offense punishable on summary conviction. So there'd be a few elements of that. First of all, there would be some issue about whether walking up somebody's driveway to put a note on their car amounts to loitering or prowling. Okay. I think probably the loitering would denote some element of in a surreptitious way, hanging around. If you mm. sort of come there and put the note and leave, I'm not sure that's loitering. Okay. Prowling uh, sort of uh, denotes something sinister more than I've come up here to deliver something, uh, a note or message. And then the other element of that that would be a live issue would be the issue of without lawful excuse. Uh, and there's another general legal principle that would have some application, and that's the idea that there's a implied consent for a person to come up your driveway and walk and, for example, knock on your door or deliver flyers or mail. Those people aren't committing some offense every time they show up to drop off the potentially irritating uh, bundle of, uh, you know, flyers on your door. You know, they're they're not guilty of, uh, you know, prowling or uh, trespassing or anything else because there's an implied invitation to do that. So... I think it would depend on what exactly is going on. You, you okay. can't go and lurk around the uh, edge of somebody's home uh, in the middle of the night. But on the other hand, if you sort of walk up somebody's driveway, deliver a message, flyer, political message, a bundle of penny savers, whatever it is you might uh, have to drop off, I, I don't think the criminal law is going to get engaged there. All right. Thank you for, for your thoughts on that. Let's dive right into our stories of the week. What is required when one is having a birth registration produced by the state, by the appropriate authority, but one wishes to include more than two parents. Yeah, I thought this was a, uh, at the end of the day, a a happy story of uh, sort of the modern uh, reality of parenting. Uh, And uh, this is a a decision which uh, just came out from the uh, B.C. Supreme Court this week, um, and it dealt with the issue of exactly that. What is required to have three people listed uh, as the registered parents of a child? And the particular fact pattern was these three uh, individuals. Uh, They were Mark, Echo, and Nana. So they referred to themselves in the decision. Uh, Echo and Nana and Mark all live in uh, Greater Vancouver. Uh, Echo and Nana were in a uh, same-sex relationship since uh, 2010. And Mark was a close friend of Echo and Nana. Echo and Nana and Mark were all interested in having children. Uh, And uh, so they entered into an agreement to do that. And Mark supplied um, semen for both Echo and Nana to become pregnant to have uh, two children. Uh, And before doing that, all three of them entered into a uh, verbal agreement as to how that would work. Uh, 
And the agreement was they would all be parents, they would all be registered, and they would all three of them participate in raising uh, the children. Uh, and so on they went. And then uh, a short time after that in February, they entered into a written agreement specifying what they had verbally agreed to. There's no disagreement as between the three of them. It was all well understood what they were going to be doing. Uh, but that became significant in this case, the written agreement uh, following the oral agreement. At one point, it w- the case was that uh, if you had some disagreement about who should be listed on a uh, registration for birth certificate, birth registration, you could go to the Supreme Court and they would sort of look at past cases and a judge would make some determination as to who should be listed there. But we had a number, we had a few years ago in British Columbia, uh, an act called the Family Law Act, which was amended to try to contemplate some of these modern arrangements, sort of, uh, you know, how who is to be listed in the case of a, a surrogate parent? How is that to be dealt with? Is that person the parent? What about the other people? Is it the person who was the biological parent? Who, who's there and in what circumstances? And that act tried to create a complete code as to how these things would be sorted out. I, I suppose to... Uh, remove uncertainty and avoid people having to go to court in each case and make some argument about it. Yes, uh, and obviously they tried very hard. <laughs> you know, when you when you read the Family Law Act, they're contemplating all sorts of uh, sort of modern circumstances. You're sort of uh, oh my goodness, uh, I never thought that might come into play. You know, what happens when the you know intended parent dies prior to the birth of the child, and the, there is a sur- you know surrogacy agreement. Uh, you know, what happens when a child is conceived with, uh, you know, sperm after the death of the person who is the provider? Who is the parent? Um, how is that to be dealt with? And it tries to contemplate all of these possible scenarios. Hmm. Now, it actually tries to contemplate a, a circumstance sort of like the one that Mark and Echo and Nana found themselves in, where they all wish to uh, become parents. And I should say, though, all of this was successful. Uh, there were, uh, in fact, uh, two uh, children uh, born as a result of these efforts, one from uh, each of uh, Echo and Nana, or the uh, uh, birth mothers for each of those uh, uh, children. Um, and then what happened is this, the, the nice names too, uh, Luca and Luna, were the name of the uh, the two kids who were born. Mm-hmm. Now, with for Luca, here's where the challenge arose. The uh, the three of them tried to register themselves as parents for Mark, or Mark, Nan, and Echo all tried to register themselves as parents for Luca. Here's the problem. That comprehensive code that we tried to develop in the Family uh, Law Act has a requirement that there be a written agreement made, and this is the language, before a child is conceived through assisted reproduction. And then it lists various things that must be the case for that to govern the decision about who's to be listed as parents. Mm-hmm. The problem was, Luca was conceived prior to the written agreement. After the oral agreement, prior to the written agreement. So the registrar of these things says, no, sorry, we have a comprehensive code. Even though all three of you are all in agreement, all of you wish to be listed as a parent, the provincial registrar says, I'm not registering you. You didn't comply with Section 30 of the Family Law Act is you only had a verbal agreement until after the child was conceived. So I therefore refuse uh, to register the child. With respect to uh, Luna, that wasn't a problem. Luna was conceived after the written agreement was entered into, so tick that box off. But if you can imagine the this, 
The process to register yourself as the parent of a child is an online process. I guess no surprise given this day and age. The online process, whoever has two spots, not three, uh, to fill in who the parents are. I guess ordinarily that would be satisfactory. And so uh, Nana and Echo wrote their names in the spots, and then they wrote Mark and company, wrote a letter to the registrar saying, hey, uh, here's the agreement. I'm to be entered in there too. Please add me in. I'm number three. And to which the registrar said, no, I'm sorry. You've already <laughs> There's completed. only two boxes. There are only two yeah. boxes. We, you, you should have done this first. Oh. We can't correct that. There's no changing it. Uh, sorry, uh, it's final. Uh, and so that's how it is that Mark, Dan, and Echo all wound up in the B.C. Supreme Court uh, having a, an argument with the Registrar of General and Vital Statistics uh, to try to get themselves listed. And the struggle the judge had is, well, this looks like the legislature has created this complete code contemplating every possible scenario that could occur, not having bearing in mind this scenario, which was everyone's in agreement, but nobody wrote it down until after one of the child children was conceived. Hmm. Now, happily, and I think this is a uh, happy ending story, Yes, the uh, judge was considering a section of the uh, act that allows the court to resolve the languages any uncertainty uh, and the any. argument any uncertainty isn't there always some uncertainty though in fact that was important <laughs> uh, because the judge pointed out that the phrase any uncertainty is broader than what the legislature could have used which would have just been quote uncertainty uh, and even though there is this complete code the judge concluded that any uncertainty was a broad enough language uh, that it uh, permitted the judge still some authority to do what all of these people intended uh, and to have all of them listed on the uh, birth certificate and registration for the child. And so the judge so ordered, but made clear that, um, you know, people shouldn't expect that remedy in every case and make sure you write these things down. Don't just go to court after hoping it'll be fixed. And then that left the problem of Luna and the two spots in the online form. Uh, and again, the registrar is saying, I'm sorry, you've completed the online form. I can't fix this. It's That's it. Uh, and uh, there is apparently a tiny bit of wiggle room which permits the registrar to correct a, quote, technical error. And uh, so thankfully, uh, the judge concluded that the absence of the third spot in the online form constituted a technical error uh, and therefore directed the registrar to go back <laughs> and add Mark in, as everyone intended, uh, and so this uh, happy uh, modern family of five uh, can uh, carry on with everyone listed on the birth certificate. It's so, am it amazing how malleable the definitions of certain words can be when they need to be, isn't it? And I must say, thank goodness that's so, uh, because no one wants to live in a world where, I'm sorry, you ticked the wrong box in your online form. No one can fix it. That's it for the child for the rest of their life. Sorry, Mark, you've been cut out. Uh, there are only two spots. And no one really wants to live in a world where, despite our very best efforts to think of every possible combination, no one wants to live in a world where it's, I'm sorry, you didn't write that down in time. Uh, therefore, for the rest of the child, children's lives, Mark isn't listed on one of the birth certificates <laughs> because of the time of conception. So thank goodness for a little bit of uh, uh, wiggle room in the uh, language and a reminder to all of us trying to come up with complete codes that contemplates everything, including people dying and what about this and that uh, in the interim? We're just never going to quite get it right. So leaving a little bit of wiggle room, I think, is good news for all. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Stay with us. 
For 60 years, you've counted on CFAX 1070. 55 degrees is the temperature downtown Victoria. In 1980, when Mount St. Helens erupted. It looks like an atomic bomb in slow motion. In 1996, when the snowstorm of the century hit. They are absolutely desperate for shovelers. In 2019, when an historic building burned. Fire crews continue to spray the former Victoria Plaza Hotel. If it's happening, it's here on CFAX 1070, celebrating 60 years. The best way to Black Friday better is to Black Friday sooner during our Orange Friday sale. We've just added more massive vacation deals with savings up to 35% on all-inclusive winter vacations. Take advantage of these limited time offers and vacation better with our best price guarantee and award-winning service. But hurry, sooner is always better. Book today with your travel agent or... Andre's electronic experts on the TELUS Black Friday. All iPhones, zero dollars up front, plus tax on a two-year term, plus scratch and save for up to $350 in-store credit. Or kudo, iPhone 8 on medium tab and a $250 bonus gift card. Double your data from $45 a month. Andre's on the TELUS Black Friday on now. Andre's electronic experts. Your TELUS authorized dealer, formerly McKay's 1681A Old Island Highway. Canadians don't let weather slow us down. We get out there to work, to play, in the truck that more of us drive. The Ford F-150, built with capability to help you own every season and smart technology that makes every job easier. Right now, get 0% purchase financing for up to 60 months plus over 8,000 in total value on select new 2019 F-150 models. Get the truck built for any season. Get your F-150 at your local Ford store or Ford.ca. It's the Briggs Black Friday Sale. Line up for incredible three-hour deals starting at 6 a.m. Get a modern sofa for only $4.99. You save $380. Or get 60% off a Springwall Chiropractic Eurotop Pocket Coil Queen mattress. It's only $3.99. Plus, line up before 6 a.m. and get a $100 brick promo card to use towards your purchase of $9.99 or more. Some exclusions apply. Visit thebrick.com for more info. The Bricks Black Friday Sale. Saving you more. There's a serious teacher shortage in B.C. And no wonder. We have the highest cost of living in the country, but some of the lowest salaries for both new and experienced teachers. The government's answer? Bringing untrained, uncertified adults into classrooms. And sending kids with special needs home for the day. Instead of fixing the teacher shortage, we're going backwards. This government promised to do better. Parents and teachers expected better. And students deserve better. A message from BC's teachers. You think you know someone. Grammy winners, Emmy winners, Hall of Fame players, and comedians. But how well do you know their voice? Meghan Markle, Lady Gaga, Lindsay Lohan. Wednesday on CTV. You're all invited to play along. The international hit that has celebs singing in the most outrageous costumes. Look at I'm so freaking confused right now. They'll keep you guessing week after week. Man, this is tough. Who are you? The Masked Singer, television's musical sensation. All new, Wednesday at 8, only on CTV. Listen to CTV Vancouver Island News at 6 every weekday. Brought to you by Commissionaires Victoria. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. It's Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Our second story today, how does pleading guilty impact a sentence that is handed down for an offense? 
Yeah, we got a little bit of uh, reminder and clarity from the Court of Appeal last Friday about that issue. Um, and I think it's one worth talking about because I think there are some misconceptions and I think perhaps some differences between Canada and the U.S. and what you might see in uh, news reports from there. So in Canada, the starting important starting point is this. There's no penalty for somebody having a trial. If somebody pleads not guilty and has a trial, you're never going to hear, well, you had a trial, therefore you're going off to the gulag for some extended period of time. How dare you uh, insist upon the Crown proving the uh, charge? We don't have that. We do, however, have a concept that a guilty plea, in some circumstances, could reduce what would otherwise have been the appropriate sentence. So, for example, let's say somebody was charged with robbing the bank, Uh, they pled guilty at some early opportunity, a judge might legitimately say, well, look, I was going to give you five years for robbing the bank, but you've pled guilty at an early opportunity, and that shows a number of things, including remorse, probably, for robbing the bank, might show that you've taken some responsibility for what you've done, and might be an indication that you're on the road to rehabilitation, right? You said you did it, you you stomached up and uh, acknowledged it. And a judge might legitimately say, well, look, the authorities say that the appropriate sentence here would be five years, but given the early guilty plea, I'm going to reduce that to four years. Thank you very much for coming out. It's not as if there's some penalty for having a trial, but there could be some reduction for the guilty plea. It's just a little bit different. But here's the sort of difficult case uh, that the Court of Appeal was uh, dealing with on a sentence appeal. If somebody, you can have a circumstance where a person pleads guilty but doesn't agree with the Crown's what we call aggravating circumstances. So Mm. let's say this. Let's say a person was charged with robbing the bank uh, and the Crown was going to allege that, well, when they robbed the bank, they had an automatic weapon, they shot the guard in the foot, uh, they, uh, you know, shot up the whole bank, uh, they pistol whipped the teller, took the money and took off, right? And the person says, look, I agree that I robbed the bank, I'll plead guilty to doing that. But my version of events is I went in there with a note and a squirt gun uh, and said, you know, the note said, please give me my, the money, I'm desperate. They took the money and ran away doing nothing else. Now, both of those are robbing the bank. But as you might imagine, the shooting the guard in the foot and doing various other things would be very aggravating. Yes. And might well cause the judge to say, well, look, you know, this isn't a case where five years would be enough. This has to be 10 years or whatever it might be. So how do you resolve that? And the way it's resolved is if a person admits to the offense and pleads guilty but denies some aggravating fact like shooting the guard in the foot, there can then be a hearing, an evidentiary hearing, to determine on what basis is the judge supposed to sentence this person because it's an impossible task if somebody says, I plead guilty but I say I didn't shoot anyone, I had a squirt gun uh, and nobody got hurt and the Crown says, well, yes, he robbed the thing and then injured a bunch of bystanders. Different sentences. Yes. What is to be done with that mitigating circumstance of the guilty plea where a person denies a bunch of aggravating facts and then there's a long hearing required to sort out whether those aggravating facts are true or not? Should that person still receive a discount in terms of what the sentence would be on the theory that they are remorseful and have taken responsibility for what they've done and saved court resources, those sort of things. But remorse relies on recognizance, yes? So if there is no recognizance, there necessarily can be no remorse. Well, I mean, again, here are the, here's the other problem. Yeah. And this is how the court sort of dealt with it. If you have a circumstance like in that theoretical bank robbery where the person says, I'll agree that I robbed the bank and plead guilty, but I deny that I shot anyone and I say I had a squirt gun. Well, fine. 
there will then be a hearing. It's sometimes called a uh, gardener hearing to determine, well, what is the fact pattern? What happened here? So okay. the judge can sentence the person. Okay. If that kind of a hearing occurs, the Crown then has to prove, just like at a trial, beyond all reasonable doubt, whatever aggravating fact they're alleging. Okay. And so the idea would be, if that kind of a hearing is required, and the Crown fails to prove whatever aggravating fact they were alleging, like they claim that you shot the guard, and you say, no, I had a squirk and I didn't do that, mm. um, and the Crown fails to prove it at the hearing, then the person should get the full credit for the guilty plea, because they fessed up to what they actually did. But... Where the Crown alleges something like you shot the guard, you deny it, and then the Crown proves it, and you've now had a long hearing about that, a judge might legitimately say, I'm not giving you the credit for taking responsibility for this thing because you denied the sort of important element of it, and then it was proven that you did it. So you saved no time, you saved no resources, and it doesn't demonstrate you're taking responsibility in any way whatsoever. You're just... (laughs) you know, caused a hearing of a different kind. Hmm. Uh, and so that's how the Court of Appeal uh, left it in that case. They said it can still be uh, mitigating and reduce the sentence, but while a judge has very broad discretion, they should take into account whether the Crown was successful in proving those aggravating facts or not. Um, and if they're not, it would obviously be unfair to somebody who actually used a squirt gun uh, to give them no credit for the guilty plea when the Crown alleges some aggravating fact that they just didn't prove, right? So that's how it's uh, sort of a good reminder about how sentencing works, how a judge should take into account a guilty plea, and what happens when there is still uh, a disagreement about the underlying facts of the case. Fascinating. Uh, what happens if a person does not complete on a purchase of a home, a uh, an award with many zeros on it currently in the news? I believe it was in Ontario. Yes, this was, a, I think, an important reminder to everyone as we should go about our business trying to buy homes. This case is from the Ontario Court of Appeal. Uh, and the circumstance was that back in the spring of 2017, when the real estate market in Toronto was red hot, there were routinely multiple offers coming in for houses. And a prospective purchaser of a reasonably expensive house um, made a an unconditional offer of $1.871 million for this house. Now, there that was not the highest offer. There were others, but this offer was an unconditional offer. And oh. therefore, the seller accepted the offer, along with an $80,000 deposit. Now what happened? Well... Ontario has their own or introduced their own uh, foreign buyer's tax of 15%. And when they introduced it, not only would that increase the cost of uh, purchasing a home, but it precipitated a uh, major drop in housing prices. They dropped 20 to 30%, significantly reducing the value of this house. Mm. And so the woman who had, quote, won the bidding war, making this unconditional uh, offer on the home, decided she wasn't going to complete on the deal. And in many cases, the seller would just say, well, fine, I'll take in that case the $80,000 deposit, lick my wounds and move on. But the important warning for people is this. That's not all you're on the hook for. And in this case, what happened is the person selling the house tried again then to sell it. And because the market had just dropped as a result of the foreign buyer's tax, they were only able to sell the house for $1.251 million, a reduction of $619,112. And so the sellers sued the prospective purchaser saying, I don't just get your $80,000 deposit. 
I get the difference between what you agreed to pay, 1.87, and what I got, 1.251, pay up. And they succeeded. And they succeeded last uh, this week in the Court of Appeal. And so the uh, person who had made the offer argued that, well, hold on, this was frustrated by the introduction of this tax. Yes. And then she tried arguing that, well, it was an implied term of the offer that she could only uh, complete if she was able to sell her own home, to which the court had none of, saying, well, you made an unconditional offer. It wasn't subject to selling your own home. Um, And, in fact, you managed to get this, quote, deal for less than what other people were offering because you agreed to make the offer unconditionally. Was the offer made with the assistance of a lawyer drafting the... It would have been a real estate agent. Okay. Right? And that's right. ordinarily how it would be. Because I was thinking, can they sue the, the lawyer, lawyer, the real estate agent, or no doubt, did this? No, that, that may be the next claim. All hey, right, real estate right. agent, you should have warned me. Well, but, I'm just thinking. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I must say this. You've made an unconditional offer to buy the thing. So, yeah. and that I don't think was uncommon when the real estate market is red hot because the person thinks, how else am I going to get it if it's subject to inspection and selling my own house and whether my husband likes it, nobody's going to buy the thing. Hmm. So, there's the cautionary tale. This person's on the hook for the uh, $619,000 difference plus 4600 bucks in interest, which was what the additional mortgage interest paid. Uh, and uh, $15,000 in legal fees. So be very careful when you make those kind, of an o- those kind of offers. You are on the hook for, potentially, much more than the deposit you're offering, uh, even though, in some cases, a seller might just say, I don't want to bother litigating it. I'll just take the deposit and just sell the thing again. If you have the misfortune of the market dropping 20 or 30%, you're on the hook. There we go. Now, legally speaking, Michael Mulligan, thank you so much as always for your knowledge and your insight. Thank you. Michael Mulligan every week here at CFAX 1070 for Mulligan Defense Lawyers.